there was an anti-apartheid activist named Robert Bukwe, and the apartheid regime detested him so much that they came up with a just a special law just for him, and they named it after him too. So he served part of his sentence on Robben Island in solitary confinement. And going back to what I just said about them disliking him so much, they actually built a special quarters for him. So they built house on Robben Island. And that is where he stayed. That's where he had his office there. He had a, li- a small library there. So he would write, he would cook, he would do everything. But it was essentially solitary confinement. He wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. The guards were not allowed to talk to him. So he was essentially cut off from everybody. He was not allowed to receive a lot of guests. So maybe he would see his wife and children maybe once a year or even less than that. But they had it out for a lot of, a lot of different people, activists, artists, poets, anybody that that was exposing them and talking about the bad things that they were doing, they were under the, the, the spotlight, so to speak. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie. And that was Nagel Institute Research Associate Nabundo Obi from a recent Second Saturday Art and Justice online gathering when she shared about her visit to Cape Town in a presentation that dealt with the intersection between art, apartheid, and social justice. As part of the presentation, which included slides that would be available through a link in the show notes, Nabundo shared about the history of Robben Island and the conditions faced by inmates of its maximum security prison with photos at slides two and four of former South African President Nelson Mandela's prison cell and another former inmate, Mr. Sparks, who now offers tours of Robben Island to share the truth of his experience there. Nabundo also shares about the history of apartheid that many believe began with Van Riebeek's hedge, shown at slide six, how the power of art was used to address and fight against apartheid by the Medu Art Ensemble with a few of their posters featured at slides 9, 12, and 13, how best to deal with and use controversial statues, like the Rhodes statue, as an educational tool, the role of activist art, and how she defines justice. Nebundo Obi, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law's Second Saturday. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You've prepared this beautiful presentation, Cape Town, the intersection between art, apartheid, and social justice. So whenever you're ready, please. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining in on this call from wherever you are. So thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to listen to my presentation. I'm just going to give you a little bit of background as to how I ended up in Cape Town. So I am currently a research associate with the Nagel Institute, and I am working with um, the Engaging African Realities Project that is based in Calvin University, which is where the Nagel Institute is. Earlier this year, we went to Cape Town for our annual conference. So we went to different locations, and I just wanted to share what I have learned. The way I organize the presentation is I'm going in terms of chronology. So I'm going to start off with Robben Island. It's the oldest place that we visited. 
during our trip. And so the picture you see here before you is the inside of Nelson Mandela's prison cell. And he was incarcerated on Robben Island for 18 out of his, the 27 years that he served in prison. For 400 years, Robben Island has been a site for numerous things. So it has been a leper colony. It has been a, a prison for exiled Dutch subjects. It's also been a psychiatric ward, a military base during World War I, and most recently, a prison for political activists during the apartheid regime, which started in 1948. Essentially, the island was used to imprison the poor and, well, to put it nicely, rebellious elements. To get from the mainland to Robben Island, we traveled for about 10 kilometers by boat. Robben Island, it, I mean, it's in the name, island. It is in the middle of nowhere. And so it's the perfect place to put a, a prison, especially because Robben Island itself is surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean and it's also infested with sharks. So escape is virtually impossible. There's only one, one instance that I've been able to find in my research of one man who was able to escape the island, and he did so twice. And his name was David Sturman. Unfortunately for him, the there was no third attempt uh, because he was promptly shipped off to Australia, where he was sentenced to, I believe, six more years of hard labor. And shortly after that, unfortunately, he passed away. David Sturman was there in 1700s, 1800s, but the first female political prisoner on the island was named Krotoa or Eva. She was born in 1643, and she served as a sort of interpreter, a diplomat between the Dutch settlers and the locals. And at, at some point, she was able to successfully broker peace agreements between both sides. However, unfortunately, due to her powerful position, she was regarded with a lot of suspicion. And that coupled with a series of tragic events in her life, including the death of her Dutch husband, resulted in her being imprisoned on Robben Island. And she eventually died there in 1674. So we're going to flash forward to the 1960s. So by 1961, the island itself was now used as a prison for, quote unquote, dangerous political activists. And the island itself was exclusively meant for Black political activists and non-white political activists. Um, because you have to remember at this point in time, apartheid was very much um, a thing. It was both culturally, socially, and legally instituted. White political activists and female political activists were held at a different location on the mainland. 
on Robben Island, the standard practice to deal with inmates was and 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 to break them down was to put them in solitary confinement. There have been there are numerous examples of various anti-apartheid activists like Robert Zubukwe and Dennis Goldberg who were subject to solitary confinement themselves. It was very much routine for prison guards to look through letters sent to inmates. Inmates were only allowed to receive one letter a year, and they were only allowed to get one visit a year. And so whenever letters would come in for the inmates, the prison guards would take scissors and cut and redact, essentially redact the letters. And so what the the, the, the inmates would be left with was um, what they would call window letters. So you would literally see gaps of, of paper missing all over your letter. And the only time that the guards did not tamper with the letters was if the letter contained news of uh, one of the inmates' uh, family members passing away or any kind of traumatic news. In addition to the psychological torture and the physical abuse, inmates were often put to work in the island's limestone quarry. And I'm sure most of you know that limestone is used to make a lot of costumes. So you can imagine being forced to do hard labor day in, day out in the limestone quarry with dust flying everywhere. Eventually, what ended up happening to a lot of the inmates was that they developed types of eye conditions, and in some instances, they also developed lung disease like silicosis, which is a very low and uh, debilitating lung disease. And so I'm going to segue into talking about our tour guide, Mr. Sparks. And Mr. Sparks himself was a former inmate on Robben Island. And he was imprisoned on Robben Island at the age of 17. And this was because he had been accused of engaging in terrorist activities, meaning they alleged that he was caught inciting others to join an anti-apartheid group, which he belonged to, the African National Congress. And according to Mr. Sparks, um, he told us a little bit more about what everyday life was like on the island. And he talked about how the conditions were deplorable. Prisoners were constantly exposed to the elements all year round. And I'm not sure how large my picture is, but you can see over here how wide the bars are. So you can imagine in the middle of winter and with the volatile wind coming off of the Atlantic Ocean, you can imagine just the sheer amount of um, ocean, oceans, fine ocean mist and, and coupled with the cold winters, coupled with being malnourished, being tortured, being deprived of human contact, you can imagine what that did to a lot of the inmates. Mr. Sparks specifically during the course of the tour talked about the different kind of treatments that um, inmates got based on their race. So on Robben Island, Black inmates 
were not permitted to wear long trousers. So all year round, they had to wear shorts. And this was initially. Eventually, things changed. Because subsequently, prisoners started to protest and go on hunger strikes and engage in other forms of civil disobedience. And so Black inmates were also not permitted to have sugar, jam, or meat, or bread. They were simply given, they were given smaller portions. They were given uh, like a, almost like a porridge-like food to eat. And then they got this special drink. Mr. Sparks called it a special drink. And it was called Puzamandla. And Mr. Sparks told us that when new inmates would come in, the older inmates would warn the, the new ones not to drink the drink because apparently, as it turned out, the drink was poisoned. It, it, it contained a sterilizing agent. So some of the inmates ended up becoming sterile from drinking the Puzamandla. And so as we, we kept going through the tour, they took us to the courtyard. They showed us where the inmates were uh, allowed to exercise for an hour a day. And one of us asked Mr. Sparks, so why do you, why do you do this? Why do you, what makes you show up to this place every day knowing that you were essentially imprisoned here you were tortured you were abused you had people who were trying to rip your humanity from you why do you come back what, what makes you come back here and what he said was that he realized that all the anger that he had held onto for all those years was not going to help him to move past the trauma of being on Robin Island, and that in order to free himself from the suffering that he endured all those years on Robin Island, he decided that he was going to sign up to be a tour guide. He was going to show up and bear testimony to what happened on the island so that it will not be forgotten by future generations. And he also said, he also admitted himself that there's still a lot of work to do to the legacy of apartheid. This is just an image of one of the indigenous flowers in South Africa. It's called the Bird of Paradise flower. We went to the Kirstenbosch National Botanical Garden. And then we walked through the garden and we got to see the lion's head, which is pictured here. And that is one of the more prominent features of the tabletop, tabletop mountain range. And then over here in this lower right-hand corner, there is a picture of Van Riebeck's hedge, which holds a lot of historical significance in that it is a physical marker. It's a physical boundary that was put in place by von Riebeck in the 1800s to demarcate what would essentially become Dutch property or Boer property. Once that structure was erected, 
in the history books, it's not considered to be the first physical manifestation of the beginnings of apartheid, of what would come later on. We went to the Boulder's Penguin Colony. It was quite the experience. And so before I go into the next portion of my presentation, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of what apartheid is. And so what is apartheid? Apartheid officially began in 1948, and it comes from the Afrikaans word means apartness or separateness. And it was a policy that governed the relations between Africa's white minority and white majority for much of the latter half of the 20th century. And it sanctioned um, racial discrimination, racial, political, economic, and social discrimination against non-whites. And um, like I mentioned previously, apartheid existed before apartheid. Um, and that is to say that before it became the jure or legalized, it was already embedded socially and culturally. And then I'm going to talk about total strategy very briefly. Total strategy was a policy that was implemented by the apartheid regime in 1979 as um, it was a 12-point plan to essentially crush any form of opposition, both internally and externally. At this point in time, South Africa, the, the apartheid regime was much concerned about the spread of communism. And so while they were dealing with the danger of, commu of communist ideas and ideals influencing the South African population, they were also dealing with internal protests, they were dealing with internal struggle with various groups that wanted the apartheid regime to be overthrown. And then in 1996, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established by Nelson Mandela, and this was after the fall of apartheid. And essentially, the, the job of the of TRC court or commission was to provide opportunities for people to seek out restorative justice. And so they would hold public hearings for both victims and perpetrators um, of the apartheid regime. And sometimes perpetrators were actually granted amnesty, but their case had to be heard on a case-by-case -case basis. Which brings me to the portion of my presentation that is about the intersection between apartheid, art, and activism. I will be talking about a group called the, the Medu Art Ensemble, and they were founded in 1977 in Habarone, Botswana. And at the height of the group's active years, they were about I believe 50 activists that were uh, engaged in the in in the work in the work that they were doing. And one of the more popular quotes that they are known for is you strike the women 
you strike a rock, which was a rallying rallying cry from the 1956 anti-pass campaign. And I'm going to, as I go along, I'm going to show you a couple of examples of some of the work that the Medu Arts Ensemble created. But before we go into that, I just wanted to give you a brief segment on what the anti-pass campaign was and the rise of women in social activism during this um, time period. And so on August 9th in 1956, 20,000 anti-pass protesters, women, mostly women, if not exclusively women, of various races from various parts of South Africa, converged on the union building in Pretoria to make their demands known to Prime Minister Stridon. And what they wanted was for the pass rules to be abolished. And essentially what the past rules did and had been doing since the latter part of the 1800s was that it prevented non-white men and women from traveling into white-only spaces. And because of this, a lot of a lot of the non-white citizens of South Africa were essentially cut off from good job opportunities, good schools for their children, access to good medical care. And so what they were forced to do was to live in, for lack of better words, ghettos. Um, And so the protest that happened in 1956 was merely a culmination of a series of protests that were primarily led by women um, who wanted to get rid of the past rules because they considered them to be both racist and also sexist. As a lot of times, men and women who were found violating these past rules were imprisoned And in some instances, they were permanently removed from the areas in which they resided in. And so we're going to go on to the next slide. I'm just going to show you these four women were the spokespeople for the Women's March that took place in 1956. And in their hands, you can see a stack of petitions that they presented um, at the Capitol building in Pretoria. And then on the right-hand side is a picture of Judy Seidman, who is one of the living members of the Medu Arts Ensemble. And she was, she's originally from the U.S., but she was very active in the efforts of the Medu Arts Ensemble, and she was with them from 18, um, sorry, 1980 to 1985. And so that brings me to the main portion of my presentation. Art has always served as a space to imagine new possibilities and share new ideas. The Medu Arts Ensemble itself is one of several activist groups that worked secretly to weaken the apartheid government's hold. The group was formed in 1977 in Khabarone, Botswana. And I stumbled 
upon this group by accident, actually, when I was prepared for my presentation, but I decided to talk about them because they were around for quite a while. The Meru Ensemble was comprised of members from different artistic expressions. So they had members that were artists, poets, dancers, musicians, playwrights. But one thing that they all shared in common was that a significant portion of them had been exiled. So a lot of them had been essentially kicked out of South Africa for their activism. It was outside the purview of the South African apartheid regime that they went to work. It became their single-handed mission to fan the flames of rebellion and awaken a collective Black consciousness by putting the injustices that they witnessed in ink on paper to testify against the government and call others to action. And I also wanted to clarify that members of the group came from different countries. So you have people from the U.S., you have people from various African countries. So you had people from all over the world who were part of this underground resistance um, art collective. And as the name, the name Medu means um, roots, and it comes from a Sepedi word, which is one of the native languages spoken in South Africa. And it describes the organization structure. Essentially, the way the group was organized was that all the artists, visual artists, writers, um, playwrights, everybody would do what everybody else was doing. So if you were a visual artist, you would you would do writing. If you were a writer, you would do visual art. So everybody had to learn how to um, express their ideas in other uh, mediums, which is one thing that I find particularly um, fascinating about this group. And so in 1978, the Medu Ensemble became the armed cultural wing of the African National Congress, which I mentioned previously in the pre- in previous slides. And so what they did was they created anti-apartheid posters, plays, poems, that really spoke to the atrocities that the apartheid regime was perpetrating. And in their artwork, they also emphasized the need for citizens to resist the regime and come together in their communities to discuss the importance of nurturing a collective pan-African consciousness. The posters that you see are very um, visually striking. So there was an example in the previous slide. There's this one with the South African woman holding a rifle, a gun. And then there are also other examples in other slides like this. And so this is a typical Medu ensemble poster design. It's um, very very blocky, very graphic, uh, very textured, very gritty. And this was all deliberate. A lot of these posters were designed to appeal to the masses. They were not necessarily designed to be, to look like fine art paintings. And so the group's work was heavily inspired by artists from around the world, artists and thought leaders like 
Bertolt Brecht, Wole Shoyinka, Frida Kahlo, Francis Fanon, Langston Hughes, and many more. Judy Seidman, who was in the previous slide, she's one of their more well-known members. And in 1981, she designed this poster that you see um, to commemorate the 1956 anti-pass campaign. During my research, I found that the Medu Ensemble were considered to be a very um, dangerous group by the apartheid regime, as you can imagine. In 1982, they decided that they were going to host this collective large festival in Botswana called the Culture and Resistance Symposium. And over 900 people came to this symposium to discuss what they believed was the role of art in bringing about change and overthrowing the government. Unfortunately for them, because of the publicity, uh, the, the, the public nature of this gathering, they were then targeted by the South African Defense Force, which was essentially the apartheid regime's not-so-secret police. And, and because of that, in 1985, the SADC raided one of the houses that the members were, were in and just killed, shot at everybody in sight. And 11 people died that day, two of them being members of the Medu Art Ensemble. And once that tragedy occurred, the ensemble disbanded. So members that were not killed either fled the country or went underground. And Judy Seidman, who we saw in the previous slide, um, was one of the only artists that I know of who remained in Botswana after after the events of 1985. What I essentially learned from my research about this group was the power of testimony, the power of collaboration, and the importance of mobilizing and gathering strength from the community. Part of me wishes that what happened in 1985 didn't happen. I, I would have loved to know what more the group could have done um, in that instance. Another place that I visited during my trip was the campus of the University of Cape Town. And in 2015, it was the site of both violent and peaceful protest. And what really sparked the protest was this statue over here. And since we're talking about the power of art and visual communication and symbols, I, I thought it would be appropriate to include um, this little segment. And so the Roads Must Fall movement started on March 9th, 2015. And essentially what students were calling for was for the removal of the statue of Cecil Rhodes off of the campus. And when I went to visit, um, one of the professors showed me where the statue was used to be, stand. And in the in in that from that location, 
Cecil Rhodes is essentially looking down on the city of Cape Town, which is quite symbolic. And so the movement began when a student named Chumani Maxwele threw a bucket of feces at the statue. Once that happened, it, it, it seemed like the movement itself took a life of its own. But it's important to note that this was not the first Roads Must Fall protest that had happened. Protests like this had been happening on the campus of UCT since the 1950s and 60s. And essentially, Cecil Rhodes it, is viewed as by the students, was viewed as one of the chief figures whose economic exploits in South Africa irreparably destroyed the culture of the indigenous people. Students and student activists called for the removal of the Cecil Rhodes statue because they felt that it was essential to decolonizing the space. Protests kept happening and 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 subsequently the scope of the decision widened so so it went from being we need to remove the statue to we need to remove the statue and we need to decolonize campuses and we need to address institutional racism and lack of access to higher education for lower income students so the the scope of the movement grew and so after a series of discussions then decided that the statue would be moved. And so they removed it. If I, rem- I think I remember this correctly, they removed it away from the site that you saw in the picture, but then they moved it there. Um, and this was after the statue had been defaced. So some people, somebody came and hacked off the nose. Um, the authorities put it back on, then it was hacked off again. So there was a lot of back and forth, but eventually, exactly a month later, the university council had a debate, had a vote, and they moved the statue elsewhere. The question remains for me, does removing a statue really resolve the issue at hand, or is it merely just a starting point for enacting change? Thank you very much. That is the end of my presentation. <laughs> Thank you, Nabunda. That was, uh, you covered so much ground in, in a short time. I, uh, I want everyone to know that if you have a question or a comment, uh, please raise your hand or just jump in. And I will go ahead with a question that, um, starting with the road statue, uh, Nabundo. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. What are your thoughts? Like, what is the appropriate? Uh, I mean, this is a topic um, that we've heard a lot about uh, in in conversation throughout society lately. What are your thoughts on the best use of statues like that uh, as a tool for education versus just eradicating them from our landscape? In my personal opinion, I I do not think that I, I understand the understand where some people are coming from when they when they argue and say okay we need to remove let's say a confederate the statue of a a, a a confederate statue let's let's remove that i understand the sentiment of removing those kinds of statues because they 
remind people of darker times, but I do not think that it is wise to try and uh, complete, like eradicate the statues by destroying them or removing them and hiding them away. I, I do think that because history is so complicated and so multifaceted, I do think that there needs to be space for these statues to still exist. But I think maybe perhaps what might be a better approach is to maybe put statues in a museum, but house them, but but to um, put them in a different context. So let's say like the statue of Caesar, for example, rather than hide him away somewhere, why not move him to a different location, but have a plaque that talks about the history, his role in South Africa, um, both the good and the bad, because human beings are rarely just good or just bad. They're usually a mixture of both, kind of like a bag of Skittles. Um, so I, I personally don't think that it is wise to try and erase that part of our collective global history, even though I understand that um, seeing such figures or statues in, in, invokes a lot of pain for people. But I do think that it's something, if, we, if you hide it away, it's not going to be talked about. And it's not going to get resolved. It's just going to be shoved in some dark corner of some place. So that's just my personal opinion. But other people are free to disagree with me. For the Medu Art Ensemble, the the they they did end um, a few years before apartheid ends. Do you have a sense, or did you? have any takeaway about uh, your thoughts on the impact that they made and how it contributed to the end of apartheid? Hmm. Yes, that is a very hard question. Um, because it's, it's hard because this is a very new topic to me. So I'm still, I'm still c- coming across new information. Even yesterday I was just doing a quick search and I came and I found even more information. Um, but I, th- I think I could, I could talk more generally. Um, and so I do believe that groups like the Medu Art Ensemble have had an impact on the overthrowing of the apartheid regime, um, but maybe not in an obvious way. It's more of a subtle thing. So, for example, I'm just going to go back to an, a law that was in existence during the apartheid regime. It was called the Terrorism Act. And I believe it was in place in 1967. And essentially, the reason why that law was put into place was to prevent activists artists and other free thinkers from coming out to talk, to speak up against what the apartheid regime was doing. So I think that in that sense, because groups like the Medu Medu, um, Ensemble 
were engaged in public discourse. So I forgot to mention in my presentation that they also did a lot of community-based organization. So they held meetings, they held um, sessions where people could come with their creative ideas and brainstorm together. So they did a bunch of different things. They didn't just make posters. They were very active in the community. And so I, I do think that in that sense, they were very much involved with a lot of the organizing and protesting happening on the ground. So I hope that I hope that answers your question, even though it's not very specific. It's not as specific as I would have liked it to be, but that is what I have gathered so far. And and since yeah. we've been doing these second Saturdays for a while, uh, we've talked off and on about yeah. uh, the impact of activist art and how we might play a role in that. And I just wonder, uh, over the course of our conversations, as well as your visit and, and researching mm-hmm. on this topic, do you see the role of activist art for yourself in a different light? Or how have you, um, how have you internalized it for the issues that you see? Yeah, um, I think for me, whenever I've made, and this is just personally, whenever I've made art, it's always been a a solitary activity. It's something that I've done by myself. But after reading about the Medu Ensemble, I what really struck me was the cohesion of the group and the single-minded vision that they took on and that they worked towards and I was like wow I I would I would love I would love to be in that kind of community where I can where I can do that um with other types of artists not just um visual artists because as I mentioned um members of the groups um didn't they didn't just draw they didn't just paint they they wrote poems they wrote plays they wrote songs they danced they did all kinds of things and to answer the second half of your question how do i if i understand this correctly how do i see my role as an artist in in engaging in activism which is another hard question. <laughs> um, you're asking me a lot of hard questions. Um, I think for me, I'm more of a quiet type of person. I'm not really, I'm not really the person that stands at the front of the line. So I would say that my own way of engaging with various social justice issues right now at the level that I'm at is to learn more, to be honest with you, is to learn more about various injustices around the world and to learn about how different people in different groups have worked together to overcome these challenges. And to share that knowledge with other people. Um, I, I think for me right now, that that is my own little way, <laughs> my own little form of activism is to 
talk about the issues that I'm passionate about, that I'm interested in with other people um, so that they can know more um, and maybe change their perspective on a topic that maybe they thought that they knew a lot about, but actually they only knew one side of it. Um, and so for me, part of activism is constantly learning and being willing to have my mind changed. Yeah. And then my next question would <laughs> yeah. perhaps be an extension of that then. Uh, do you have a, a definition of justice that, that you've come to and, and has it evolved over the course of this research? Yeah, that was another challenging question uh, that you asked me. And I think after reading about a lot of the challenges and injustices that people faced during the apartheid regime and 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 to a certain extent still face to this day because um as we all know social institutions are very they're very resilient they endure uh, long after they've been you know taken taken out of rotation so to speak and so being in cape town and seeing all that i've saw and reading what I've read so far, I think that for me, um, and I'm going to take one aspect of justice because it's it's broad <laughs> and I don't think I could, I don't think I could encapsulate it as I'd want to right now. I, I still need to think about it, but I think one aspect of justice for me means having the ability and the opportunity to defend yourself from 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 lies you know if somebody says that you did something i i i think that in a world where there's justice you should be you should be able to defend yourself and not be penalized for it you should you should be given a fair chance to prove that you are innocent um, and so I think that's for me that is one aspect of um, of justice. And then another aspect is justice means to me not being not being persecuted, not um, not being subjected to being constantly um, targeted by unfair rules, unfair policies. Um, that limit your your life outcomes, the quality of your life. So I, I think that justice means to me being able to stand in one's truth um, without fear of of of, of persecution. Um, and so um, another thing that mind. Going back to the beginning of my presentation, when I think about justice, I always I, I think of Mr. Sparks, the man who led our tour, um, and how after apartheid ended, what essentially happened was that the government set up this program for former inmates to lead these tours on Robben Island. 
And so I think that by giving former inmates the opportunity to talk about their experiences in in on Robin Island and to talk about all the things that they witnessed and what they went through and what they have learned. I, I think that that is one aspect of justice, giving people, allowing people who have been wronged to tell the truth as they have experienced it without anybody coming through and saying, no, 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 this, this doesn't happen. No, you're overreacting. No, this didn't happen. I, I think that that is one aspect of justice is that allowing people to tell their truth. And I think that that is an important part of reconciliation, of trying to mend the wounds um, that have occurred. So that is my response to your question. Yeah. Yeah, and the was it the Truth Commission that was set up afterwards, where they had the public hearings and mm-hmm. allowed people to seek restorative justice through that uh, vocalizing of what they had witnessed. Yes, there's actually yeah. um, a documentary on Netflix. I think it's called "How to Become a Dictator" or something, and so it's um, they have different episodes um about different dictators and there's one where they talk about the TRC i forget what what which um episode it is i think they talk about apartheid in one of the episodes but they do talk about the TRC and i believe one of the people in the documentary was the wife of a political activist who went um missing during the apartheid uh, regime, and he had been he had been murdered, and essentially what happened during one of such hearings is that the man who actually shot her husband came to tell his side of the story, and he was seeking amnesty. He wasn't granted amnesty um, because he he abducted. Her husband drove him across the border and killed him. So it, it's it, it it involved a lot of steps. So the commission said, "No, we're not going to grant you amnesty. That's just not going to happen." But um, in other instances, there have been other instances in which people were granted amnesty. Yeah. So so like yeah, so restorative justice. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Namundo. <laughs> yeah, and I really appreciate it. It's a, uh, it's a, a, a very rich topic, uh, rich in a, a way that um, is unfortunate that it yes. has existed. But uh, we were talking before the call about how there's just so much, um, and so I appreciate you putting this together as you have. And if there's anyone uh, who has any thoughts or comments, please um, jump in. Um, Hi, I wanted to thank you both for just a really wonderful presentation, a very informative and thoughtful presentation. And I especially appreciate uh, your bringing up the Women's Collective, because now we see all these posters about uh, Iranian women, Mm -hmm. and their posters are so vivid. And now I see a connection with the past, with with what you have presented. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. And Stefania, did you have a comment? 
Yeah, I do. First of all, thank you very much, Nabundo. I hope I said your name correctly. You did. Um, it was a very insightful presentation. Um, I learned a lot, and there's a few things I need to go back and research some more because it like there's some questions. But I guess one, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it's more of a comment or like a sure thought that I wanted. I couldn't phrase it as a question, so I'm gonna get my pen. Um, yeah, it's just more like. I was wondering while I heard you talking, by the way, I loved your definition of justice, um, um, especially towards the end when you when you said standing in one one's own truth. I think you said something like that and and not being persecuted for it. That's such a beautiful definition. And um, one thing that that occurred to me while you were speaking and in answering the question about activist art is you were very humble about like viewing activist art as learning, which is beautiful. But I think that from your perspective and this trip that you made and everything you've learned, there's probably a lot that you can share from your perspective. And I'm not very familiar with your art because I'm just getting to know you. (laughs) I feel like if you haven't already, it might be, you know, really interesting and you could teach others through your own vision. And I think that's just um, something you might want to consider, even though it is a vulnerable position to put yourself in. And I second that. Wow. Thank you. That's that's very deep. Yeah, I definitely will consider that. Thank you, Stefania. And is Yarnik? Hi. Hi. I really like your presentation. And um, I just was wondering, and you, uh, I believe you told me once about that, um, Mm -hmm. about Mr. Sparks. Yes. Uh, and how he said how difficult it was to uh, to well, attempt to forgive uh, the captors. And, mm-hmm. um, and that he also felt that he had to do this for, for his own sanity. Yes. Um, do you think, in your experience, that it, this can relate to uh, seeking justice? And I wondered about that. <laughs> <laughs> Another hard question. Hmm. That is that is uh, a very multi-layered question. I do. I do agree with Mister. Start off with. I do agree with Mister. Sparks. I do think that there are times where forgiveness is essential for yourself, because otherwise, the rage and the anger. And the hurt, you just it just it just eats you up on the inside. Um, but then, to if you could remind me, what was the second part of your question? I just it just <laughs> it just escaped from my mind. <laughs> you, you said you're you're muted, Yarnik. Yeah, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Perhaps um, I wondered if this perhaps also can be related to. Uh, to justice and reconciliation and perhaps to the Truth Reconciliation Commission. Yes. Going back to what I said about being able to stand in your truth and not be persecuted and that being an aspect of justice, I think that at least for Mr. Sparks, what he communicated was that for him, being able to just even like walk around freely and talk and talk about his experience um 
was justice was the beginning of justice for him for for what he and other inmates went through. Um, and so I, I do think that once you're able to tell the truth about what happened to you and and how somebody wronged you, I do think that once that happens and you are able to work through that trauma, I do believe that for some people it is possible to go towards a step of reconciliation, to go towards a step of feeling that the wrongs that have been done against you are, they're still there, but it doesn't, it doesn't hurt as much. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's not an indictment against you anymore. You are, you have been, you you have been vindicated. You're now, you are now free. So that, that's, that's my answer. But I, I'm sure we will continue this conversation uh, because it's something that I'm constantly still thinking about. But thank you for the question, for that very hard question, <laughs> all of you. There will be links in the show notes to the slide presentation, as well as the Engaging African Realities Project. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on your preferred platform. And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. You can also leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast or email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.